You are listening to a podcast produced by the Jackson School of International Studies and the Ellison Center for Russian, East European, and Central Asian Studies at the University of Washington. This and other podcasts can be found on iTunes and SoundCloud. For more information, visit us at jsis.washington.edu slash Ellison Center. Good evening. Wow, it's good to see real people in person. This is the first live in-person event that we have done in over two years. My name is Scott Radnitz. I'm the director of the Ellison Center for Russian, East European, and Central Asian Studies. Much has changed in the past two years. Uh, Among other things, we are now in day 43 of a pointless, unprovoked war one that is based on imperialist and quasi-religious visions of Russian power that seeks to nullify Ukrainian statehood and nationhood and kill as many people as needed in the process. The rationale behind this invasion reflects, among other things, Vladimir Putin's conspiratorial worldview, a Ukraine full of Nazis who want to kill the Russians, and especially the West, intent on weakening or destroying or encircling or otherwise doing nefarious things to Russia. A belief that in fact predates Putin, but has gotten a lot more fevered and intense in recent years and especially recent months. Our speaker tonight has been observing this phenomenon in Russia for quite a while. And while his book on conspiracy theories in popular culture and discourse predates this war, he may be able to shed light on some of these events that are happening today. And it wasn't necessarily the case before, but today everybody truly hates Russia. We first invited Elliot to come speak for us over two years ago. In fact, I checked my email today, it was February of 2020. We had to put off those plans, but now he's bookending the pandemic in a way by being our first in-person speaker, and we would not have anybody else do this job. During this period, he chose to write books, plural. Elliot Borenstein, our keynote speaker for tonight, is a professor of Russian and Slavic studies and senior academic convener for the Global Network at New York University. He is the author of, and here we go, Men Without Women, Masculinity and Revolution in Russian Fiction, 1917 to 1929, Overkill, Sex and Violence in Contemporary Russian Popular Culture, Plots Against Russia, Conspiracy and Fantasy After Socialism, and Pussy Riot, Speaking Punk to Power. That's what he's written in the past. Now he has three more books forthcoming. Marvel Comics in the 1970s, The World Inside Your Head, coming out in 22 this year, 23 now. Next, Meanwhile in Russia, ellipsis, Russian internet memes and viral video, 2020. It's out. It's out? Okay, this is an old bio. Um, And Soviet self-hatred, the secret identities of post-socialism. He is now also writing HBO's The Leftovers, Mourning and Melancholy on Premium Cable and Unstuck in Time on the Post-Soviet Uncanny. He may not be able to address all these topics tonight, but I'm sure whatever he has in store will be scintillating. Uh, so now please join me in welcoming Elliot Borenstein. Thank you, Scott, for that generous introduction. And now I feel like spending the next 40 minutes talking about HBO, because really, um, that would be in many ways a lot more, uh, more fun than what I am going to talk about. But before I actually start my presentation proper, I want to explain what I am and I am not doing. Like so many of you, 
I have been shaken to the core by the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the continuing revelations of abominable war crimes. I've been constantly refreshing my news feeds and feeling a mixture of horror, sorrow, and guilt that I find hard to describe. So I'm not going to attempt to describe it. This talk cannot be about the invasion of Ukraine that happened last month because I don't feel in any way capable of, of processing this intellectually just yet. It's reflected in my talk, um, but only reflected and comes back in the conclusion. Most of this presentation was written months ago, but revised since. And I'm not good at performing sincerity, that is, at putting words to deeply held feelings without feeling like I'm somehow faking them. A talk that is truly about the Russian invasion should be solemn and angry, and that is not what I've written. I have been pulling this text apart and putting it back together like Penelope weaving and unweaving to stave off her suitors, and I've decided two things. One, I only know how to weave a certain way. And two, rather than pretend that my weaving is seamless, I'm going to acknowledge that the result is of necessity ill-fitting. So with that, let me start with my text proper, which has its own sort of vamping introduction. So here we go. So there are times when I envy Dostoevsky scholars. Not only because Dostoevsky is what got me into this business, but because no matter how inventive and ingenious the latest treatise on crime and punishment might be, the text itself is rather stable. It's the same book in 2022 that it was in 1982, the year I first read it. And the number of actual revelations to come out about its history, or Dostoevsky himself, are vanishingly few. I think you can already see where I'm going with this. But it's actually even worse than you suspect. It's not just that the Russian Federation's criminal, brutal invasion of Ukraine has made it difficult to think about anything else for the past two months, nor is it the that the invasion has forced me to rethink my long-held conclusions about the Putin regime. It's also, as um, Scott said, that Scott's original generous welcome invitation to come speak at the University of Washington reached my inbox on February 15, 2020. Yes, that 2020. <laughs> The dates changed a few times, but the basic idea was that I would leave New York City, which was rapidly becoming America's COVID-19 epicenter, for Seattle, which had previously been the first city to hold that unwanted distinction. <laughs> Rather than move to Zoom, we postponed. Then we postponed again. Then, just to mix it up, we postponed it yet again. Of course, no human is to blame for this, at least no human who was not part of the Trump administration. Um, but, but here we are. And I flew here today on a direct flight that ended up making a stop in Milwaukee because a passenger got sick and they called for a doctor and there was no doctor. And, um, and I'm still here. Um, so I'm here two years later and I couldn't be happier to be speaking to you in person. This talk was originally supposed to be a low-impact assignment for me, a fairly breezy run-through of what was then my most recent book, Plots Against Russia, Conspiracy and Fantasy After Socialism. A few months ago, uh, when pressed for a title, I came up with Everybody Hates Russia. That was in quotes, because my point was going to be that this really isn't the case. <laughs> now it is, so I get to look prescient, rather than what I really was, which was mistaken. But the unpleasant upshot was that now I was going to have to do what no one really wants to do, which is extra work. But, so the focus of today's talk is the deployment of the idea of Russophobia to justify the Russian government's actions at home and abroad. Russophobia, the irrational hatred of Russia, is an old, not very good idea that has joined so many other old, not very good ideas to form one of the few stable pillars in the ever-shifting ideology that might be called Putinism. The regime and the Russian state media have been hurling accusations of Russophobia right and left since Putin's return to the presidency in 2012, priming the Russian public to believe that the entire Western world is conspiring to destroy the motherland. This notion is now sadly on display for all to see. Putin has justified his, his invasion of Ukraine as a defensive move against the American puppet Nazi drug addict regime in Kiev. The insistence on the reality of Russophobia is how we got here. Previously, I've had unkind things to say about the Yeltsin era's preoccupation with trying to workshop a new Russian idea. 
The Russian Idea, some of you will recall, is the title of an important work by the emigre philosopher Nikolai Birdyaev, published in 1944. Birdyaev did not come up with this term, of course, but he was the one to give it its most extensive treatment. The Russian Idea, I would say, is less an idea than it is an idea about an idea. That is, the content of the Russian idea can be filled with a variety of different notions, but the idea itself is usually built on the premise that Russia has a unique historical destiny, an important purpose to play in the world. Yeltsin, in response to the general sense of rudderlessness in the aftermath of the collapse of communism, established a governmental committee to develop a new Russian idea. In other words, the Russian idea arrived first as tragedy, then, if not exactly as farce, then at least a really bad strategic priorities working group meeting, and you can bet that it had PowerPoint. Now, I think that it might be even worse than that. I'm probably over, overly influenced by current events for which even worse than that serves as an unofficial motto, but hear me out. Despite the weird, fumbling syncretism that characterized most of the Putin years, despite the opportunism and cynicism with which the Kremlin has tried on a whole range of, of ideological stances, Putinism has finally come up with its own Russian idea. That Russian idea is Russophobia. In other words, that idea is the unexpectedly apt title of my talk today. Everybody hates Russia. Everybody hating Russia does not sound like a positive mission statement, but it is an effective way of reinforcing the central position Putin's media so desperately wants Russia to always occupy. According to Matthew 7:16, by their fruits ye shall know them. Russia has never been known for growing fruit unless fruit is a metaphor for oil, but Russophobia, is the, as the Russian idea, implicitly alters the New Testament passage. By their enemies, ye shall know them. If those parts of the world that are constantly defined as evil are hell-bent on your destruction, you must be doing something right. Russophobia has become um, important as part of the national renegotiation of the country's selfhood in the wake of the Soviet Union's destruction, part of the forces that, th that threaten the fetishized sovereignty of the Putin era. So who are the enemies of Russia? Who is it that hates Russia so much, and why? This is not an idle question. In August 2016, the Russian Ministry of Culture allocated 1.75 million rubles for a study of, quote, technologies of cultural Russophobia and state administrational responses to this challenge. The concept would seem to be straightforward. Those who argue that Russia's critics are guilty of Russophobia insist that a fundamental irrational hatred towards Russia itself is the prime motivator. But accusations of, Russian, of Russophobia do not exist in a vacuum. They express at least as much about the accuser as the accused. These narratives of Russian victimhood play out with the Manichaean melodramatic framework of the large-scale conspiracy theories I discuss in my book. Besides the obvious political utility, reflectively deflecting blame for anything with which the Russian state or government might be faulted, they also do important ontological work, establishing a relationship between self and other that starts to look suspiciously like a kind of mirroring. Consider Channel 1's response to the 2018 news that Russian double agent Sergei Skripal may have been poisoned by Russian agents in, in England. This seems like so long ago, but some of you may remember this. The channel's director, Dmitry Kisilyov, uh, labeled London a death trap for Russians and speculated, if you think hard about it, only Britain stands to benefit from the poisoning of the, GR, of the GRU colonel, simply to nourish its Russophobia. That is, um, Russophobia motivated Britain to poison um, the Russian defector um, to make Russia look bad. The discourse of Russophobia locks Russia into a dyad with the perceived enemy, displacing actions and, and um, attributed initially to one party and a shared characteristic of, as a shared characteristic of, of both. This sharing is not simultaneous, but rather a timeshare. The accusation is passed back and forth like a football. 
This is why a reasonable response to the Kremlin's conspiratorial blather about Western-backed chemical and bio biological weapons labs in Ukraine is to worry that Russia is planning to use chemical weapons in Ukraine. Um, they're blaming Ukraine as a preview of actually what they're going to do. In structure, the discourse of Russophobia resembles a narcissistic self-regard, manifesting a preoccupation with how Russia looks from an imagined external view. The presumption of hostility, rather than tearing down a sense of Russian greatness, reinforces it, using external animosity as a gauge of importance. As we look closer at the resurgence of, of Russophobia discourse in the wake of the Soviet collapse, we see how closely tied it is to a sense of Russia's existential precarity. In Pyotr's response to the chaos of the 1990s, the culture of the Putin era is preoccupied with rectifying the problem of Russia's object impermanence. Years of entertaining the possibility of Russia's total destruction have been remedied by the continued reassertion of Russia's existence and centrality on the world stage. And here, the discourse of Russophobia has been crucial. Consider again Russia's latest invasion of Ukraine. One of the many surprising elements in this unfolding story is the lack of even the pretense of an inciting, of an inciting incident. The Kremlin and state media have manufactured anti-Ukrainian atrocity propaganda for eight years now, most notably the story of the, uh, of the Russian boy crucified by Ukrainian fascists in 2014. Spoiler, it did not happen. Yet they couldn't even be bothered to whip up a Reichstag fire as an excuse for the special military operation because apparently they didn't even need to. All they needed was to reiterate what they have been saying all along. The West is using Ukraine as part of its efforts to destroy Russian statehood. Ukraine then was invaded to save Russia from an existential threat. This may be the ultimate expression of Russophobia as narcissistic mirror, mirroring and, and projection. It is Russia rather than Ukraine that is threatened with extinction. Like so many marginalized ideas, Russophobia has moved from the fringes to the mainstream since Putin came to power. Though the term has a long history, dating back at least to a letter by Russian po uh, poet Fyodor Tsutchev in 1867, it only began to gain currency in the 1980s, thanks to the work of uh, dissident mathematician Igor Shafarevich. The word Russophobia inevitably forms and deforms the contours of the debate about hostility to Russia. Accusing someone of hating Russia and charging them with Russophobia appear to be the same thing, but function quite differently. It's clear that the term's deployment in relation to Western countries is far less about the personal experience of discrimination. This is how Russophobia di differs from, say, Islamophobia, which attaches as much to individuals as it does to religion. This does not mean that the sort of bias is absent, but simply that this is not what we're talking about when we, ta when we talk about Russophobia. Instead, the victim of Russophobia is usually construed not as Russians, but as Russia itself. The offended party is the state. If we accept the increasingly common emphasis on statehood and sovereignty in contemporary Russian discourse, then perhaps viewing the state as an abstract and personal idea immune to, to, immune to offense as something that really we shouldn't even be worried about is in itself Russophobic. That is, if more and more Russians identify proudly with the state, then shouldn't their pride be just as respected as the more personal sensitivities associated, say, with race? This is not a position I can comfortably adopt, even if its rejection is difficult without invoking the old Marxist accusations of false consciousness. There has to be room for, to see the state as a political actor whose choices are subject to rational critique. The modern nation state assumes sovereignty as a matter of course, but Russia, at least in Putin's first two terms, would make sovereignty something of a fetish object. It's of course an accident of history that, Russia's, that Putin's turn to sovereignty as a substitute for an idea would coincide with the Western academic left's rediscovery of sovereignty as um, one of the worst things in the world. 
Scholars and cultural studies have had their attention turned to sovereignty largely by the work of Giorgio Agamben, whose books Homo Sacer and State of Exception, built on Foucault's ideas of, of biopolitics as a way to define precisely how the sovereign state operates. This was before um, Agamben went all anti-vaxxer. Um, central, uh, central to his critique is his use of Carl Schmitt's definition of sovereignty as the power to declare the state of exception, that is to suspend the rules that supposedly constitute power, and also distinguish between civic or qualified life, the Greek zoe, here the political life of the citizen, and bios, bare life, the human being as nothing but a body. The modern state has become particularly preoccupied with the deployment of bodies from the Nazi concentration camps at one extreme to the seemingly innocuous collection of biometric data on, on the other. And actually, now we do get back to anti-vaxxers. Um, thus making bare life a central component of the state's operations. While there's no doubt that the sovereign state under Putin exerts its biopower in multiple fashions, army conscription being the obvious one, Putin's notion of sovereignty is curiously divorced from sovereign operations on the population. Instead, we have a kind of bare sovereignty. Um, uh, sovereignty whose entire purpose is sovereignty itself. Instead of, instead of a state, state ideology in the USSR, there was an ideology of statehood. Again, this approach to sovereignty belongs in Lacanian terms to the imaginary order. It's not a cultural space to be discussed, articulated, or contested. For Putin, it's the country's ego ideal. This is made clear in 2006 by Vladislav Surkov, then Putin's deputy chief of staff, sub subsequently personal advisor, and almost always great cardinal. In a February 2006 speech to United Russia's Center of Party Training and Cadre Preparation, he acknowledges the belief that globalization renders sovereignty increasingly obsolete, only to reject the idea in the strongest terms. Globalization threatens Russia's very independence, no less than military occupation by foreign powers. NGOs and multinational corporations can take control of a weakened state, so Russia's only option for survival is strong state sovereignty with full control over the country's borders and territory. Russia, according to Surkov, is a state-forming people and therefore cannot find its destiny in such transnational entities as the European Union. Internally, the greatest threats to Russian sovereign democracy, Surkov's name for the ideological placeholder that characterized Putin's second term, are the oligarchs who would bring us back to the 90s and extreme nationalists and communists who would bring us even further. Bare sovereignty sees the source and the objects of salvation as the Russian state. It was the latest and most effective response to the post-Soviet anxiety over the loss of great power status. In the 1990s, the mourning over great power status verged on the melancholic. By contrast, Putin leveraged the shaky prosperity brought by high oil prices into a cure for what ailed this country before bringing it back to the brink of ruin less than two months ago. The most reflexively cynical critique of this admittedly cynical system would be to say bare sovereignty is power only for the sake of power. That would suggest something along the lines of Orwell's definition of power at the end of 1984, the boot that is constantly coming down on the su subject's face. But Orwellian power is pure biopower, ensured and enjoyed through its exertion on the bodies of the people. Bare sovereignty hardly needs the people at all. The genius of bare sovereignty lay in its, em in its very emptiness. Eurasianists like Alexander Dugin found it a convenient repository for their ethnographic fantasies, but without needing the regime to endorse them. Ideology proved to be nothing more than a sideshow next to the real drama of state power. It doesn't matter what story the sovereign tells his countrymen, the crucial fact, fact is that he stands there speaking from a position of power. As in the 1990s, the, the content-free ideology of bare sovereignty did not put an end to the culture of conspiracy. 
To the contrary, philosophers, pundits, and novelists continued to spin their tales of a Russia besieged by the West in general and America in particular. But the government, while tightening control on broadcast media, was still keeping its distance from the larger cultural sphere. To be sure, nationalist anti-liberal youth groups such as uh, Moving Together and Nashi Hours were rightly seen as Kremlin confections. They wanted to be perceived as grassroots movements, but were easily dis dismissed as astroturf. Yet even astroturf is an attempt to manipulate civil society rather than reject it. And in keeping with the corrosive cynicism so commonly associated with this period, astroturf also cultivates a useful habit of suspicion. The fraudulence of these groups ultimately reinforces the message that any group's claim to non-government initiative are mostly sham. By the time Putin was elected to his third term, media figures had, deflected, had developed a reflexive response to any apparent manifestation of anti-government sentiment. Who is really behind this? We're back to the logic of deferral, so, so essential to allegorical and conspiratorial thought. Recent years have, shown, have seen the wholehearted commitment to the kind of conspiratorial thinking that has, had been developing in the wider culture for decades. Increasingly tight media controls had already created a set of structures that would be the ideal vehicles for conspiratorial thought. The emphasis on, on the primacy of the state, the reinforcement of the sense that Russia has always been besieged by hostile powers, the reflexive distrust of civil society, and the habit of seeking hidden motivations and secret puppeteers. In response to the street protests of 2012 and 2013, the media now clearly endorsed a quasi-nationalist, quasi-Eurasianist narrative that ascribed all of Russia's ills to hostile alien forces, whether they be Maidan activists, resurgent Ukrainian fascists, American NATO schemers, or the fifth column in, or na of national traitors so famously invoked by Putin back then and um, making a reappearance right now. Adopting conspiracy has entailed a fascinating compression of historical time. If so many of the prominent post-Soviet conspiracy theories de detail a long history of Western betrayal, now the media declare both new treachery on the part of NATO and the US, while simultaneously invoking that very conspiratorial history with which the audience might not have been entirely familiar. Just as Ukrainian nationalists must always be described in terms of the Banderan fascism in World War II, so too must the West's alleged undermining of Russia and its near abroad be seen as simply one in a long list of similar underhanded actions by Europe and the United States. Of course the West is the enemy, and all its actions are, cons are construed as motivated by Russophobia. How then does Western Russophobia fit into the conspiratorial narrative? The answer lies with modernity, but with intensely mixed feelings about modernity. America and Europe exemplify the lure of the modern, but also serve as a cautionary tale, while Russia's relations with both depend on a vicious circle of rejection. Russian hostility to America and, by extension, Russian perception of American Russophobia are rooted in profound disappointment. This is the disappointment that comes at the end of the 1990s when, um, uh, after, years, after a few years when it looked like Russia and America might work together as partners, um, a lot of people in Russia felt betrayed by, um, among other things, the uh, American uh, the, the bombing of Belgrade, which really turned public opinion um, against America drastically and seemingly irrevocably. This was a turning point that, um, that uh, has characterized a sense of anger and disappointment in America and the West um, ever since. Um, Russia's anger over the bombing was cast both internally and for export in terms of the long-standing brotherly ties between two Orthodox Slavic nations. But these ties were only rediscovered in the 1990s. It's not as if people in Russia had been talking about Serbia so much before then. Um, in other words, the Russian media and political elites emotionally invested in Serbia precisely when Yugoslavia was collapsing. 
The implicit homology between Serbia and Yugoslavia on the one side and Russia and the Soviet Union on the other meant that Serbia's struggles were seen as a proxy for Russia's. What the American media cast as human rights and European security problem was, in Russia, presented as a test case for America's plans for Russia itself. And I should add that the current war in Ukraine is playing itself out exactly according to the Yugoslav scenario, down to the accusations that the other side is bombing itself to make us look bad. The disgusting allegations that the massacre in Bucha is fake is an extension of this logic. And again, we saw it all in Yugoslavia. If America is the enemy, indeed if America is hell-bent on wiping Russia from the map, its aggressive role in the plots against Russia must have a reason. The Russian chattering classes can't get enough of Samuel Huntington's clash of civilizations, a notion that whatever merits Huntington's book might have, and I don't think it has very many, um, easily lends itself to facile essentialism. The adoption of traditional values as fundamental to Russian ideology um, in the past 10 years um, is the culmination of years of resentment and skepticism towards European or Western values. By no means do I endorse the clash of civilization model, which I find in practice to be little more than an ideological prop. Instead, I'm arguing that the model has obtained such widespread currency um, as to be all but taken for granted. Moreover, this model fits perfectly with the ideological track that introduced Russophobia to, to late and post-Soviet Russia, the short, scandalous book by um, Igor Shafirievich. So this book, um, Russophobia, is this tract about how um, there was this small people inside the state-creating um, state people of Russia, um, a small people who are resentful and who really are trying to control things um, behind the scenes. Spoilers, it's the Jews. Um, and um, though he says it's, uh, it's not the Jews, some of his best friends are Jews. Um, um, but anyway, um, what Shafarevich does with this book in the early 80s is reintroduce the concept of Russophobia at a time when it wasn't really needed just yet. Because at that point, it was all about being anti-Soviet, right? Um, who is being anti-Soviet within the Soviet Union and who the anti-Soviet forces are outside of the Soviet Union. Then the Soviet Union collapses, and talking about anti-Soviet sounds kind of out of date, though somehow it's come back again. Um, but the idea of Russophobia, of hatred of Russia, um, becomes this really useful, available thing um, to bring back um, and then to retrospectively um, use to interpret the last hundred years of, um, of uh, the world's relationship with Russia. Um, so, it, so it does become big again, and it also provides a model. So I said that this, um, this little people are the Jews, and they are the Jews, um, but it, it, the, the great thing about it is that it's um, a structure that can be, you can kind of mix and match. It, it's the Jews, but it doesn't have to be the Jews. It could be um, queer people, it could be the LGBTQI uh, community, it could be Ukrainians. Um, uh, the conspiratorial model that Shafarevich sets up here um, starts out anti-Semitic, um, but as an old comedy album from the 1960s, but it, you don't have to be Jewish, um, and in fact becomes something that can be filled in with any kind of hateful content. Um, so, Russophobia, when it's released from the confines of this book, becomes an all-purpose blanket explanation for any disapproval of anything done by Russia and Russians. Russophobia does not need to be explained or proven to be invoked and possibly believed. It turns a basic paranoid subject position, the world is against us, into both an, affirmative, an affirmation of the paranoid stance and the motivation for the enemy's attack. As a concept, Russophobia doesn't require full-fledged conspiracy theory to invoke its justification. But what it does provide is, if not an ideology, then an ideological placeholder that covers all anti-Russian sentiment or activity. Thus, Russophobia is immensely convenient for Russian conspiratorial thought, occupying the all-important enemy space in a banal, underdescribed manner. Um, Russophobia is an example of, um, of a constant deferral, a signifier that points not to an exact 
thing it's signifying, but points to an endless chain of other things that are being pointed to. Um, it needs no explanation when invoked, but is available for explanation by pointing to other better developed theories of the enemy. Russophobia is the explanation that explains nothing. Which brings us back to where we started, the ap apocalyptic narrative of Russia's destruction by malign forces. Why are the enemies trying to destroy Russia? Because they hate Russia. Why do they hate Russia? Because they're Russophobic. Recall that the apocalyptic narrative has the positive benefit of confirming Russia's crucial role in world history. Russophobia is the abject of other of Russia's messianic mission. They are based on the same binary opposition, Russia and the rest of the world, but with the balance of power reversed. Russophobia makes Russia both the victim and the explanation. Russia's enemies hate Russia because Russia is Russia. How does the idea of Russophobia play out in Russia's latest invasion of Ukraine? I told you I'd get back to it. Um, I've already alluded to the narcissistic doubling and projecting involved, though that was so far back in this endless talk that you've probably already forgotten it. Um, and that is indeed part of it. Ukraine's role in the, in the Russian Russophobia discourse is prefigured in its very etymology that anti-Ukrainian Russians use to dismiss Ukrainian state statehood and nationhood. The root of Ukraine suggests a border. Ukraine becomes a double threat that helps prop up the Russophobia myth. On the one hand, as the border area between Russia proper and the rest of Europe, because somehow Ukraine can never be part of that rest of Europe, um, it is a pawn in the hands of a hostile West. Indeed, it only sees itself as a separate country thanks to the West's per pernicious meddling. I hope you hear the quotes in my voice here. That's not, I'm not endorsing this idea. Um, but connected to that is the other more basic problem, Ukraine's dogged refusal to be Russia. And here I don't mean all the speculation that Putin simply couldn't tolerate Ukraine as, a, as, it, as it is because it's an example of democracy. Given Ukraine's own messy post-Soviet history, that smooths over a lot of difficult moments and serves mostly to, to flatter Democrats. No, it's the simple assertion of a separate non-Russian identity when confronted by a state that only wants to see itself in the mirror. In the propaganda campaign against Ukraine then, the Russian media have an unusually complex task. Maintaining the sense of Ukraine as self that is not really different from Russia, while demonizing the opposition as other. Any emphasis on Ukrainianness is simply magnifying a small distinction in order to drive a wedge between Ukrainians and Russians. On the Russian side, the underlying problem with Ukraine could be summed up as follows. Who do you think you are? How can you say you are not us? You are us. We are the same. The assertion to the contrary is tantamount to betrayal. Clearly, the population of Ukraine is being duped by enemies, both internal and external, who want to weaken Russia through the assertion of false nationalisms. Ukrainians have somehow been brainwashed into thinking that they exist. One consequence of this insistence that the Ukrainian other is simply another variety of self is the automatic assumption that events in Ukraine are first and foremost about Russia. Well, right now they are, but they weren't always. Um, no doubt there are geographic, economic, and strategic reasons for Russia to be vigilant about the political developments and international ties of its closest Western neighbors, but the intensity of the identification with Ukraine goes beyond political pragmatism. If this were all about political pragmatism, there would not be a war right now. As a result, Ukrainian identity, considered an irrational rejection of Russianness, turns out to be the ultimate ex expression of Russophobia. What could be more anti-Russian than refusing to admit your own Russianness? As long as official Russia refuses to see Ukrainian nation nationhood and statehood as self-expressions that are first and foremost about Ukraine and not about Russia, the possibility that Russia will treat Ukraine as simply another neighbor is vanishingly low. So I'd like to conclude by revisiting the admission I made at the beginning of the talk, that I was mistaken. 
What I meant in particular that I was mistaken in thinking that everyone hates Russia could be reduced simply to Russian propaganda and self-regard, when in fact it turned out to be a self-fulfilling prophecy. I was also mistaken, though, in the way that I imagine many of us in this room were, were, were just days before February 24th, I could not believe the Russian leadership was stupid enough to actually invade. This, then, made me wonder about the overall argument I've been making for years and rehearsed a bit before you, that Putinist ideology was inherently empty and that all the talk of Dugin as Putin's Rasputin was nonsense. My initial response is that Putinism has changed and evolved, at times in unpredictable ways. But here's what worries me. Once something happens, we tend to see it as inevitable. Like the Soviet collapse, few people thought it would happen, and now the general assumption is that the USSR could never have survived. So, was all of Putinism, with its paranoid emphasis on Russophobia, a march toward a genocidal invasion of Ukraine? To say yes is to accede to the logic of presentism. It happened, so it had to happen. Just one week after Trump's election in 2016, I asserted that America was in far greater danger of becoming fascist than Russia. Putin, I wrote, is not a fascist in part because he does not need to be. Trump ran, ran a consistently fascist campaign. Though it might sound strange, I still think I was right when, when I said that then. Putin had been playing a complex game that involved managing and co-opting elements of the extreme right, taking advantage of them in such a way that they could not develop as a competing force. What has changed in the calculus, whether that calculus can be considered rational or not, um, what, what has changed is the calculus itself. In 2022, two months into the Ukrainian invasion, fascism is the only instrument left in Putin's ideological toolbox. And Russophobia? Russophobia turns out to be the toolbox itself. Thank you.